You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, good morning. Well, that was pathetic. Let me try again. Is anybody out there? Uh, Good morning. Excellent. And a big welcome to those joining online as well. I hope you're doing well. I want to say to you, if you're new or newish here as well, welcome. If you've joined us over this summer period, we're aware uh, a lot of the life and, and rhythms of what goes on here as a church takes a bit of a gentler pace during August. So if you're here and you're new, don't worry. Uh, things are going to be uh, really springing into fresh life uh, as we turn the, the monthly calendar into September, and if you're not yet part of a life group, uh, which you heard about a little bit earlier, our small groups meeting around the city, then uh, do sign up. You can do that by heading to our information point at the back or over to the connect point by the window, and uh, we'll help you to get connected. Also, we're, uh, we're in what we have uh, coined the phrase uh, in this season of maturity and multiplication, which isn't to say that we have become fully mature in every way, or each one of us is, but we've matured as a ministry from where we are, and that means certain things for us. And also we believe the Lord is leading us into a season of multiplication, and uh, we've got an exciting update to bring next Sunday on that. So be here and uh, be ready as we begin to step into what the Lord spoke to us, and the Word becomes flesh and becomes reality. But through the summer, we've been learning lessons from the life of David in our summer series, Heart After God, which if you weren't sure or you haven't been around, it's not what David says about himself, it's what God says about him. Uh, What happens in uh, 1 Samuel 13, uh, the prophet Samuel goes to the the current king at the time, Saul, who has been disobedient and has really turned away from the Lord. And and what Samuel says is, as God has taken the kingdom away from you and your household, because he has found a man after his own heart. And what this was was a boy in a field who was worshipping by himself as he tended to his father's flocks. And this is David. It's as if the eye of God ranged across Israel to find one who he could exalt and say, this is, hey, you wanted a king, let me show you what I'm after. And he found David in a field and exalted him. And uh, then the write-up in Acts 13, the New Testament, uh, really as as. We kind of see, we look back, how do we summarize David's life? And this is what the New Testament says, that God himself testified. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I wanted him to do. And if you've missed any of these messages on on having a heart after God or facing your giants, waiting for the timing of the Lord, pursuing the presence of God, finding strength in him, then just head to uh, CLM's YouTube channel and you'll see all the messages there, or you can, uh, if you want SoundCloud and a podcast, go to our website in the resources section. I want to begin today's message by telling you how much I love David. My life has been changed by the person of David. As a young man, I remember getting into the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and the parallel accounts in 1 Chronicles and the Psalms, and I have been discipled by David, by David's life and, and the stories that are there. I've been discipled of of what it means to love God, what it means to go after God, what it means to be courageous, what it means to honor, what it means to lead. And, and I'm so thankful for him. He is, uh, other than Jesus, he's probably my, my, I know people have different people they connect with. He's probably my number one Bible character just because of how much the Lord has spoken to me uh, through his life. 
But today it falls to me in this series to look at a time not of victory, but a time of great failure. Just as David and Goliath is one of the most glorious, victorious stories in the Bible, today's story is one of the most tragic. And if you know your Bible, you'll know I'm, I'm going to be heading to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. I want to tell you, it gives me no joy here to home in on David's greatest failure. This is a man of God, and, and if I could love God like David loved God, if I could pursue God like David pursued God, then it would be a good thing. But the Bible doesn't glaze over his mistakes, and we felt it was important that neither should we. Furthermore, the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament stories are recorded and written down for us as warnings and as encouragements. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 11 and Romans 15, 4, they, they say they're there to encourage us and warn us. And who knows that in life we can learn a lot from people's successes and good example, but we can also learn a lot from people's failures and bad example. We can learn what to do. We can also learn what not to do. And some of us, we grow up in our parents' households, and we are observing some good things that we think, when I have my family, that's what that's going to be like, uh, you know, if God gives me a family. But there are also some things where we learn, if I have my own family, I won't be doing that. Who knows what I'm talking about? And today we are going to learn, not, uh, not from David's victory, but from David's mistake. And also, I want to say, thank God that we have a better king. We have a flawless king. We can take an example from David, the man of God, the man after God's own heart. But, but thanks be to God that that is not our ultimate example. He's not the one we worship. We worship a king without blemish. We worship the king of kings, the one who is over all. He is the one that we worship. So come with me to 2 Samuel 11. It will come up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, there, I encourage you to pull it up and to follow it. Now, I understand as a preacher that um, it isn't always helpful to have very lengthy passages of Scripture to read, and the, the lengthy reading of Scripture is probably best done in private. But today, I am going to read the whole story because I think there's so much detail there that is important to us. And so I'm going to invite you to lean in. Don't drift off. If you, just keep your eye on your neighbor. Give them a pinch if you need to. We're going to read the whole story. We're going to go there. And, uh, and I encourage you uh, to be attentive. Here we go. This is 2 Samuel 11, beginning at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, or Joab as the Jews call him. Send me to Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his own house. 
David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from the military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so we will be struck down and die. So while Joab was, had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. I'm going to jump three verses to 22. The messenger set out from Joab, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us, came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's, heard, Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We continue into chapter 12. Believed to be about a year later, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, this is the prophet, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and, and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and, shared, and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you as king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You, you did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by you doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Let's pray. 
Lord, these are heavy words. These are sobering words. And Father, we pray that you would help us. Will you help me to handle them well? We pray, Lord, let our hearts be open to receive, Lord, whatever you might want to say to us. Lord, I'm mindful when we touch on such subjects as the matters presented here. There are those who in their own lives have walked through some of these things, and, and these can be a trigger and cause pain to come. And I pray, Lord, let grace cover this gathering today and those gathering online. Would you let your word live in our hearts for the honor of your name? Amen. Of course, the tragic reality is that this story is not entirely alien to us. Yeah, it's an understatement to say so much has changed in the last 3,000 years. You know, normally say, like, a lot's happened in the last 20 years, right? A lot's happened in the last 3,000 years. And yet, the pain of adultery, the, the, the deception and lies of, of leadership, the, the, the sin that can come in, it's not something we can't identify with. We, it, it hits our media feeds every week in some form or another, and we don't find ourselves unable to connect with the story. The strapline for this series, Heart After God, is lessons from the life of David. And I'd like to pull eight lessons out of this story, so I'm going to need to move quick. Uh, lesson number one is this. Know that the godly can make bad choices too. Know that the godly can make bad choices too. In, in many ways, our lives become the sum of the choices that we make. You know, here David makes a series of terrible choices. He isn't compelled to do so. He isn't predestined to do so. He makes bad choices. He makes decisions. You know, I, I believe that if we walk closely with the Lord, we are safer than if we don't. I, I believe that if His Word is in our hearts, I believe if we are connected and we have accountability in Christ-centered community with brothers and sisters, if we are in His Word every day, if we are attending to His presence and the Holy Spirit is close and we are more sensitive to the Spirit, we are more likely to stay on track than to fall away by, by the wayside. And yet, I want us to understand this, that even if David wasn't in the best place at that particular moment, or even if he'd become too comfortable or complacent, here in the palace now, no longer on the run from Saul, crying out to God for his deliverance, if he had become proud or overconfident, maybe he was unaccountable. The Bible never says he stopped loving God. And I believe if we look at his responses, I don't believe David ever stopped loving God. And what this says to me is that, is that even the godly can make bad choices too. And I say that because I've come to believe this, that I am safer if I realize I am vulnerable than if I think I am not. And if, if we're to read this story and we think, I could never do what David did, there's not many of us actually going to commit adultery and then murder. All in, you know, we're not in the same position that David was for a start. But if we look at this and think, oh, that's absolutely despicable, like I could never sin. I could never do anything like this. I, I, could, I, I would never be like that. Then we are actually in a more dangerous place. And if we come and say, if David, the man after God's heart, could do this, God help me. And this is my lesson number one. You know, if we read the story through a proud lens of how disgraceful David was, I believe we miss the reason it's here in all its detail. My friends, it's hard for me to say, but you can love God and still mess up. I remember a, a, a man of God preaching in a conference of about 300 pastors uh, and saying this, who here knows that, that you are capable of committing adultery? I'm not saying you are committing, but you're capable of committing adultery. Now, this isn't a question that you're going to leap up and go, yeah! But the truth was, there was a, just a small handful of hands went up. And then he said this, he said, let me tell you, 
These ones that have raised their hands, they are safer than all the rest of you that haven't. And so everybody's hand went up. <laughs> but I think there's a truth there that actually if I come and say, God, would you help me because I am frail. Even when we love God, even when we're close to God, then we are safer than if we don't. Lesson number two is being in the wrong place will lead you to danger. Do you notice how the story begins? In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. You know, the, the springtime in going off to war is not familiar to us. We, we, we know when schools go back. We, we know when the football season starts. Some of us know when cream eggs become available in the shops again. But this was a thing. In spring, when the winter had passed, kings, if they were going to go to war, they went off to war. But they didn't send their armies, they went. And here we see that David sends Joab, and he remains behind. And moreover, all the fighting men of Israel, they go, and all the ladies remain behind, and David remains behind. And he's on the roof of his terrace in Jerusalem, and he shouldn't even have been there. And this tells me being in the wrong place will lead you to, to danger. He's reneged on his responsibilities. And I've come to know this, that if I'm where I shouldn't be, then danger is probably lurking. You know, God said to Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. I remember trying to help a man whose addiction to pornography was devastating his marriage. He loathed himself for what he was doing and and felt unable to break free from. And let me tell you, if that's a battle you're fighting, don't let the devil lie to you that it's, it's a battle you will never overcome. Because in Christ, all chains can be broken. But as he unpacked to me where this had begun, and we started to talk, where was the root in his life? He, he traced a time back when, as a, as a late teenager, he had gone with a group of friends to Amsterdam on a lad's weekend, and he had been peer pressured into sleeping with a prostitute. And he said, like, my, my world changed from that moment on. Like, I, I didn't want to do it, but I did it, and it just, and, and he was devastated by it. And it had started to, to, to cause different habit patterns and different things to happen in his life. You know, as you heard today, a credible testimony from, from, from Keisha just kind of saying, you know, like, there were things in my life I've been set free from. Let me tell you, there's things in your life that you need to be set free from. You can be set free from in Jesus' name. But I want to tell you, I'll tell you that story because this, this young man had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And danger will be lurking. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I don't know where you might find yourself. Are you in the nightclub or are you on a, a lad's or a girl's holiday? Are you in that group of so-called friends that are not walking as you want to walk? Maybe the place that you shouldn't be is a website or an app or on your phone late at night. Maybe it's a place of recurring fear or unhelpful confession that you keep circling around. I want to say, be, be careful, my brother. Be careful, my sister. Change plan. Leave, flee, cry out to God. I know a, a, a godly young man in this congregation who in his first year at university was in a nightclub and he had a moment of just said, this is not good for me. He was surrounded by temptation and he literally he fled and he never went back. And he said, I just had to change the friends that I was with. And he started going hard after God. Sometimes we've just got to get out of there. Just make a decision. This is not where I want to be. This is not where I should be. I've seen people choose sport and jobs over Sunday church attendance. And I know some of these choices aren't, aren't easy sometimes. And, and at first, 
it, it's okay, but, but over time, the, the heart becomes cold, and the absence of fellowship takes its toll. I want to encourage us, friends, be in the place where you should be, and don't be in the place where you shouldn't be. Lesson number three, when there's a warning in your heart, run for your life. Let me say it again. When there's a warning in your heart, run for your life. Nearly always big mistakes involve small steps. I know any of us, in theory, could make a massive mistake just like that and have a moment's madness. But in, in 25 years of pastoral ministry, I've never seen it. It's little steps lead to big mistakes. Do you notice here, even in one fateful night, how the, the Bible takes us through the steps? You know, David goes onto the roof. Maybe he knows on the roof that he might be able to see things he shouldn't see, and he goes up. I don't know. But, but he goes, goes up and he sees a, a woman bathing, and he should not have looked at her. You know, he, he should have, if he'd noticed, he comes into the peripheral vision. Make a decision. Don't look. David, don't look. Go inside. Call Nathan. Ask someone to help you. Have a meal. Head out. Get on your horse and go and join Joab. So don't look at her. But he looks at her. And then he, he inquires after her. David, don't, don't inquire after her. What are you doing? Don't be stupid. What, what are you doing? And report comes up. She, she's, she's married. She's married. Now, I know this is difficult for us, and I'm not going to unpack it, but, but David was in a polygamous era, and he had many wives, and if she'd been single, maybe with, there would be an opportunity for courtship and something appropriate. But she's married. She's not available. Moreover, she's not only married. She's married to Uriah, one of the mighty men. It's David's friend, or at least a mighty man in his army that he knows personally. David, don't go there. And so he sends for her. David, don't send for her. Please. I'm like, I don't know about you. I read this stuff. I like, David's my hero. I'm like, David, don't send for her. You idiot. <laughs> he sends for her. And even when he's sent for her, there's still a way out. But he sleeps with her. And it's done. And then she sends word. And I'm not even going to get to the episode with Uriah. And, and do you not believe there was a warning in his heart at some points along the way? I cannot believe the man of God who cries out in repentance and says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, that there was not a check in his Holy Spirit. But he, he overrode it. He pushed it aside. One of the most heartbreaking situations I've ever been involved with as a pastor was was a young man who was young to me. He had a young family at the time. And he had an affair, which he'd hidden for two years. And if these things have a habit of doing, it came to light. And he came and he sat with me and I put him under some pressure and he confessed the extent of it. And I, I was there as, as he unpacked things to his wife and her inevitable questions led to the extent of it. I tell you, it's like watching a bomb go off in slow motion. The level of devastation is, is indescribable. And I remember as we tried to help them and I tried to journey with him, I, I tried to help him regain his place with the Lord and, and he went through some deep soul searching and, and he wrote out like his whole history that he could remember of lust, of unfaithfulness, of lies. And I had the dubious privilege of reading this epic document as I tried to help him. And 
I remember, and I tell you this because I remember as he described what had happened, the, the lady that he'd had the affair with, he had, they'd met in different circumstances. And, uh, and he said this. He said that, as, as he wrote it out, that they'd, they'd bumped into one another at a supermarket. And, uh, and as they, they'd come out of the supermarket at the same time, and then there'd been this very, very heavy rainstorm, and they'd, they'd stayed under the canopy of the supermarket, and they'd talked. And he wrote this, he said, looking back now, that was where it began. Small steps. Nothing happened, but something happened. When there's a warning in your heart, run for your life. I remember as a young man in ministry, we, we just had our, our first son, Sam, and, and, and I, I was attending all the services on a Sunday, and, and Esther would typically come to the first service. I remember the end of the second service, there was, uh, there was someone who was there for the first time. I was one of the pastors and uh, a young lady, and I went over, and I, s I just said hello to her. I mean, I was just doing my job, and uh, I remember, uh, like, we got on really well. She was great. They were just, I just made an easy connection with her, and it was her first time in church. I introduced her to one or two other people. The next week, she was there again, and I saw her, and I, and, and I went over and said hello again, and we had another really great conversation. The next week, I found myself looking to see if she was there. And I remember the next day I spoke to my pastor and I said, look, I mean, I was a bit embarrassed. He was like, no, no, nobody's serious. Nothing has happened. I've just done my job. But I want you to know what's happened in my heart. I'm not, I, I'm not pursuing her. I'm, I just, I found myself looking to see if she was there. And, and he said, okay, two things, Martin. Number one, you need to tell Esther. Number two, uh, don't speak to her again. I said, look, I'm the pastor. I don't want to be rude. He said, she, someone else can be her friend. And if she comes and talks to you, just be formal. And I talked to Esther, and, and the strange thing that happened is Esther had had, had a, a good connection with a guy. Similar time. Nothing, nothing had happened. Hear me. Just in life. So I, I, found, it, I, I found out who he was. I smashed his face in. <laughs> but we made a decision. At the first possible step, we're going to say something, we're going to pray. Because I don't want to get near to the edge. If there's a warning in your heart, run for your life. Lesson number four. Lust is a raging fire, don't fuel it. Do you see how lust is awakened in David on the roof and every rational thought is dismissed? Our lust is dangerous. If you feed it, it will never be satisfied. It is insatiable. Oh, it may be satisfied for a moment, but it will come back stronger. It's, it's like feeding a lion, ho hoping that it won't be hungry anymore. Just get bigger and stronger. The only thing you need to do with lust is starve it. And let me say this, if you're fighting a losing battle with lust, with pornography, don't keep it in the dark. Speak to someone you trust. You won't be the only person that is walking through this. Hey, the devil likes to isolate us, think we're the only person. We're not. They won't hate you for it or be too shocked. They'll love you for trusting them. Let someone know. Get them to, to put a, a password block on, on whatever your issue. Do, do, whatever, do whatever you need to do, but bring it into the light. If they block a website and you, you fuel lust somewhere else, and get, get them to block that. Just, just be open. Be accountable. But I know there's more we could say about this. Let me say if you're dating, young man, young woman, set the boundaries way back. Pray together. Talk about how you're going to keep yourself pure and your dating honorable. Because if your courtship matures and, and you marry, you'll have saved yourself for marriage. 
And if it doesn't, and you break up, because let, let me tell you, if you're going out, one of two things will happen. You'll either get married or you'll break up. It's binary. Or you'll just keep dating forever, but that's not healthy. <laughs> and, and if you break up, then you've been honorable towards one another. And, and it won't be something that you regret. In Christ, we have the power to overcome even the fiercest battles in our lives. Lesson number five, two wrongs never make a right. Bathsheba's pregnant. David begins a cover-up plan. I think he's hoping to protect his own reputation. He's certainly hoping to hide his sin. And he brings Uriah home. He, he, he wants him to sleep with his wife and think it's his baby. But Uriah is too honorable. Oh, Uriah. I mean, Uriah's response is like, it, it, it shows up David's sin all the more. He says the ark. I mean, don't mention the ark. <laughs> he says the ark's in a tent. I mean, if you're going to get to David, he says, look, the ark's in the tent. He said, the men I'm serving with, they're in the open field. How could I possibly sleep with my wife? I mean, what's David thinking? And he has this terrible plan. And he sends a gift after him. And then, and then the next night, he gets him drunk. He thinks if I can get him drunk, he'll, he'll, he'll forget his moral standards. But he doesn't. And then the most terrible thing of all, he writes a note to Joab and says, put Uriah uh, in, in the front line and then withdraw from him. And he gives the note to Uriah, his own death sentence to carry to Joab. And he's too honorable to open it. <laughs> this is horrible. And now it's not only adultery, it's adultery plus deception and murder. Shame and hiding were... Adam and Eve's automatic response to sin at the fall and little has changed. In Christ, we can bring our sin to the light. Trust me, better to deal with the consequence of today's sin than to add to it deceit, lies, and extension of the original issue. It seems that David's heart hardens. This tender-hearted lover of God's presence, the boy in the field, is spoiled as he seeks to cover over his own failings. Never allow yourself, my brother, my sister, to to dive deeper into sin because you're trying to hide what you've already done. I, I know this is not an easy message today. I don't know if I gave my title at the start, Failure and Forgiveness. There probably won't be many YouTube clicks on that. I know this isn't kind of how to, how to have an excellent life, but actually it is how to have an excellent life. Maybe I should have called it that. Lesson number six, one more tough lesson, and then two that give us some hope. Lesson number six, God will not be mocked. <coughs> Chapter 11 finishes with this potent but sobering statement, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He may have hidden his sin from Israel. He could probably have fought Joab off if needed, but God had seen it all, and he was displeased. And then he sends Nathan the prophet. Can you imagine being Nathan? It's like the Lord speaks to him. Maybe he gives him a dream. He shows him. He wakes up, this, sees this rich man and this poor man and the little ewe lamb, and, and he wakes up and the Lord says, it's David. I mean, if I was Nathan, I'd be going, Lord, I need another sign. What a heavy message to go and carry. But he unpacks this story of the, the rich man taking this little ewe lamb off the poor man, and, and David's heart burns with anger, the Bible says. And then Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. What a moment. God will not be mocked. God confronts him with his sin. Sometimes we think we can hide things from the Lord. We can hide nothing from the Lord. We can hide things from everybody else, but we'll hide nothing from the Lord. We may be able to pull the wool over the eyes of others, 
but God will not be mocked. Others may be fooled, but we hide nothing from him. He sees it, and he hates sin with a righteous anger. And let me tell you this, he hates sin for what it does to us, because it spoils us. And it ruins our relationship with him. I believe that's why he hates it so much. Because of what it does to us. And in Christ, he's already dealt with it. Numbers 32, uh, 23 says, Be sure your sins will find you out. Meaning our sins sooner or later will, will come to light. You know, growing up, my mum had the same anointing. So mums have this anointing. Like if ever I did anything wrong, I got busted. Like does any, did anyone have a mum like that? Like I, I, I don't know how it worked. But, um, and I remember uh, in my house, one thing that was just, it was just a thing, is like you just didn't miss school. You didn't miss school. You know, if you were, unless you were bleeding from your eyeballs, you were not sick enough to not go to school. And there's no way you could ever skive a lesson or you would, you would have been dead. And so I never did. I, I never skipped a single lesson until year 13. I was 18. I, I, like, I could have been married. I could drive, I could drink beer, I could vote, but I couldn't skip a lesson for fear of my mother. But I remember I had a, a German assignment that was due, and I had a geography lesson that, in my opinion, wasn't worth going to, and I made a decision I was going to miss the geography lesson to finish my German assignment. You didn't know that I did German at A-level, did you? I can't remember any of it, so don't try me. And I remember, I, I, rather, than, rather than try and explain this scenario to my mom and have her go, no, no, you can't miss your German lesson. That's disrespectful to Mr. Armstrong. I decided I would go into school as if to go to my geography lesson and uh, divert to the library and do my German assignment. But on my way in, I met my friend Chris. And I said, oh, and Chris was going to the geography lesson. So I said, oh, ju just to let you know, like, today, I, I'm, like, I've got this issue. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually coming. So if Mr. Armstrong asks, ju ju I probably just best to say you haven't seen me. And Mr. Armstrong did ask, anyone see Martin? So, so Chris took it upon him to say, yeah, he's really sick. <laughs> so they stopped and prayed for me. Uh, no, they, they didn't. It was a geography lesson. But, um, so, but then at the morning break, my other friend, Alan, having heard that I was really sick with his girlfriend, Ruth, decided to go to my house because it was near the school to, to pay me a visit. But I wasn't there. I was in the library. And I got home at lunch, and my mum said to me, but wait for this, my mum said, do you know why Alan and Ruth came to the house? I didn't know Alan and Ruth had come to the house. And then she said this, she said, I was in the bathroom, and I, and I heard the doorbell go. I couldn't get to the door. By the time I got to the door, I saw them turning around the corner. I just said, oh, that's strange. <laughs> and I'd become a Christian about three months earlier, and I thought, oh, God, thank you, you've delivered me. And I learned that day that God will never be drawn into your sin or deceit. Because the next day in a city of 600,000 people, who should my mother bump into in the city center other than Alan? I've been able to say, oh, Alan, Ma Martin didn't know why the reason, why, why did you come? So he, he explained that he came because I was so terribly sick. And I then got confronted with, with, with how all this had come to be. And, and my, my sin found me out that I'd lied to my mother and my father. It was a sobering moment. Let me tell you, if my mum could see it, God sees it. God sees everything in our lives. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 5, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Well, it's the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. My friends, we see here that in confronting David now, he doesn't wait for the judgment. He gives David the opportunity to repent and to be restored, which takes me to lesson number seven, which is repentance is the beginning of rebuilding. My friends, repentance is a gift. We all fail. Let me say it again. We all fail. We all mess up. But repentance gives us the ability to start again. 1 John 1, 8 to 9, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the Lord confronts David. He says, I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you Israel and Judah. And if, if that was not enough, I would have given you more. And when Nathan finishes speaking to David, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And he doesn't fight. He doesn't seek to justify himself. He doesn't deny anything. He doesn't minimize anything. He doesn't say, well, have you not heard what the king of the Amalekites did? Or the king of the Ammonites did? He's undone. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He, he doesn't blame anybody else. And the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, melts before the man of God. And the story we've read, the, the, the account is short, but in Psalm 51, we hear his prayer of repentance and the thing that he has sought to, to hide from all Israel, he now makes public in front of all Israel and, and he gives them and he gives us a way to know how to repent. This is what Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me, Lord, a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Daniel, why don't you come? My friends, repentance is a key. As Pentecostals, we're not always great at repentance, at confession. There are many denominations who, whom confession and repentance is part of a weekly liturgy. It's a gift. It's the beginning of rebuilding. And here David humbles himself. As grave as, he, as his sin is, he admits to it and he asks God to cleanse him, to renew his heart. What else could he do? He cannot adequately make reparations here, but he comes before God. I know what we've read today is horrific. And we might ask the question, is David a man after God's heart? But we see here that he was. His actions were horrendous, but he knew how to repent. 
And he came in humility and fullness of responsibility. Friends, when we fail, let us not compare ourselves to others or seek to justify or to dodge, but rather allow the Spirit of God to show us the condition of our hearts. Let us throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Thanks be to God for the cross. We sang today, thanks be to God for the cross of Christ that he's already taken. You know, when we first come to Jesus, everything that we have done up to that point in, in thought and word and deed we find was upon him. And we are forgiven and we are renewed. And the Bible says the, the old is gone and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But let me tell you, I, I wish that at that moment I never sinned again. But I need the blood of Jesus every day. Because I've not managed to sustain a perfect life since I gave my life to Christ. I don't know about you. And I have to come again. And what I find is that the grace of God is there for me. And if I come in humility, if I allow the Spirit to examine my heart, the blood of Christ is availed for me. I love that, that song, Thank You Jesus for the Blood Applied. You know what? There is power in the blood of Jesus. But it's powerful to me when I let it be applied to me. Oh, thank you for the blood applied to my life. If I hadn't applied it, it would still be all conquering, all powerful blood. But when it's applied to my life, it cleanses me and it gives me a fresh start. Repentance is a gift. And the final lesson is God's grace is outrageous. It's outrageous. I know we might go home today and we're, we're still reeling from what David did. We're, we're trying to get over it. But if we understand our God, if we understand his goodness, we see that his grace is outrageous. He, Nathan says, don't worry, you're not going to die. Let me say there are consequences for his sin. And he, he bears those out. We, we read what some of those things were in the scriptures. And let me tell you, there are consequences for sin. I've seen it. I've seen marriages and lives impacted by the consequence of sin. But there is forgiveness. And I've also seen so many times in the grace of God, he will even use our mess and create beauty from ashes. It's the story of my own life. We could talk about the remainder of David's life and the preparations for the temple and the legacy that he gave. But if we come to the New Testament, let me just really quick show us two things. Because in Matthew chapter 1, the, the New Testament, it begins, the very start of the New Testament begins with the genealogy of Christ and who Christ came through uh, from Adam. And there in the line is David. In fact, Bartimaeus cries out, doesn't he? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. David's not excluded. He's not kicked out of the plan. He's, he stays in the plan. And not only that, it says, and the son of David was Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's how the Bible puts it. The grace of God. He doesn't write him out, write him off, he writes him in. And in Acts 13, God's summary in the New Testament of David, where he could have said, well, there are a few things about David. He said, he's a man after my own heart. Why don't we stand together, church, and band, come and join me. I'm going to invite us just to open up our own hearts where we are.
I'm aware there might be some here rocked to your heels by this word today because you know there are some things that you've been hiding and you need to do something. I, I'm not going to try and deal with that in this moment, but let me say to you, if you need to come and pray with our prayer team, if you need to go away from here and do something or speak to someone, my brother, my sister, do what you need to do. But can I invite every one of us in this moment just to open up our own hearts? Say, Lord, search me. Cleanse me. Maybe there are things that are on your conscience right now. Just bring them to him. You don't need to delay. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. will cleanse us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Just bring them to him. And we say, God, would you create in us clean hearts? Would you remove our transgressions from us? Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross. We thank you for making a way. Lord, forgive us for our iniquity. Forgive us for our sins. Would you come again and make us clean? Blot out our transgressions according to your grace.